Hi, and welcome to I Hear Design, an INS podcast. This is Katie Yale. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Interiors and Sources, and today we have a conversation with Jonathan Lopez, Associate Principal and Design Director at Retail Design Collaborative. We jumped right into the conversation about retail design and how retail in general is changing. So I hope that you enjoy this conversation. All right, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us today. Okay, Katie, I'm excited to get the invitation to speak with you and uh, I look forward to our, our discussion. Great. So um, we talked about it a little bit before we started recording, but will you explain to our listeners, you know, a little bit of, of who you are and what you do? Sure. Uh, happy to. So my name is Jonathan Lopez. I'm an associate principal and design director for Retail Design Collaborative uh, at RDC. And we're a firm, um, gosh, we have a lineage of, of 40 years, so um, have a rich lineage of being in the uh, practice of design and architecture and, and, and urbanism. And we have um, actually a, a global practice uh, where our headquarters are in downtown Long Beach, satellite office in downtown LA, uh, but also we have offices in Washington, D.C., as well as Shanghai, China, and Rogers, Arkansas. So we have um, a great global reach, but we're also really strong in um, our interest and our investment into kind of our local communities. So um, so that's really kind of my role and, and kind of a broad stroke of, of, of RDC. Great. And so, you know, there is this concern that the people seem to have. And I, I, I do think that perhaps the media is causing the people to be a little bit more nervous about it. But, you know, there's this idea that online shopping is just destroying retail. Um, and what are you saying as far as as the ways in which retail is being done today? I definitely think it's a relevant topic. Um, however, I don't think it's a, a kind of a one-to-one -one singular type of discussion. It, it's quite complex. Um, with it, with our lineage in retail um, for the past 40 years, we, we've really engaged with our developer partners, our clients, and, and also um, the perspective of also on the tenant side. So we get this multiple uh, perspective uh, of of what retail is and how it's been evolving. I think the main piece of its evolution is, is um, online shopping and e-commerce is an absolute reality. It's it's afforded people um, the the benefit of having uh, goods at their fingertips and, and the speed to market is, is incredible. And, and technology, the research um, has really given, I think, power to to the people, which I love, um, but that has also given a lot more challenges, I think, to the brands to really, to really step up and be responsive to what the needs are. And I, I believe that the, the base needs of the people are really the evolving lifestyles that we have. And uh, I think brands that are able to really connect to those lifestyles are, are really needing to be authentic and really have their own unique voice. There's no standardization i think in retail it's really actually going back to the basics of knowing where things come from how it affects other people i think those things matter and i, th I think that's really the shift in, in the retail world is that the we have access to products but 
the engagement of brands in a physical sense on a broader, um, let's call social responsibility uh, platform, all of those pieces are becoming really relevant in, in the world of, um, let's say, smart buyers and smart consumers. Mm -hmm. You know, that made me think, too, about, um, you know, quite often I think of my own practices and, and how I don't think I'm probably the average because I very rarely go on uh, Amazon. But, you know, mm -hmm. I'm able to follow local shops now on social media, you know, and like, um, do you ever have to work with clients on like on what their physical presence, but also their digital presence means in, in today's market? I would definitely say I find the most successful brands and clients we work with, uh, we, we've had the benefit of, of working with some of the best. And they demand, I think, that holistic design service, you know, not to think only about um, products and how uh, obviously we're, we're looking to give them a, a perspective and a platform. But um, I think in the in the spatial sense, we, we absolutely need to be thinking digitally. We need to be thinking um, social media. We need to be thinking of a broader brand strategy and how we use design, architecture, interiors uh, as a as an extension of the brand. Um, they're all very, very interlinked. So I think um, you're exactly right. Uh, a holistic approach is is weaving all of those things together. Mm -hmm. um, so right before we we press record, I, I brought up the fact that I listened to the 99% Invisible podcast yesterday on uh, shopping malls and Victor Gruen. And it, it was so fascinating to me because, you know, they were talking about how he really just disliked cars. So created the standardized mall as a means of like, like a compromise, like sure, people are going to drive here, but then they have to walk and they have to be outside and have this community. Um, but then in later years, you know, went into urban planning, doing outside like a retail. Um, so I don't know, you said that there was a lot to unpack there. So I just want you to just what are your thoughts? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, I think uh, Gruen has some some deep insights because he's really, um, I think, understanding the core model of, of planning. Uh, I think the traditional models of, of, of what we know as malls. And I think in their time it had relevance, but I think in, in the modern day um, we're asked what what the real responsibility to those pieces of real estate are. and Oftentimes, when we're discussing with our developer partners, we're asked to look outside of the box. What is the responsible thing to do with these large masses of, of land really, you know, concentrated in the middle with density, typically one to two level. Um, and then it's it's surrounded with a sea of parking to support that um, that density of, of, of buildings together. Um, and and in ways, I think it had a lot of good intentions, this idea of, you know, internal streets um, and kind of double loading that. So as you're kind of walking through, you have an experience, you know, one way on the second level or on the first levels, but they were quite insular. I think that's some of the limitations of that model, um, although it has its benefits in kind of putting everything in one place. But um I would say we're, we're seeing the surge of mixing those uses so they're not singular uses and it's creating a much more authentic 
destination for people to engage in not just shopping, but perhaps other extensions of, of, of the demands of our lives, um, whether it's health and wellness or um, even in some cases shared work or office campus um, engagements, perhaps even um, the infusion of, you know, student campuses, satellite campuses, research, um, those because it's such large pieces of land, uh, we're starting to really see what we have we can infuse to those um, typologies, even even residential in, in some aspects, to to give kind of the, the liveliness of a innate kind of neighborhood. Um, so again, it, pulling back to this idea of connectiveness in in a community and uh, whether it's a small city or, or more urban context, uh, I think Gruen's. Uh, um, I think dialogue on that was it's it's really kind of a suburban model, and in the context of retail, I, I think that retail is kind of getting back into the streets. Um, I think being in, in Los Angeles, we have the exciting, um, although we don't have a density, we have a very live and uh, rich culture. I think from an urban standpoint, and that we, we we're kind of a, a city of neighborhoods, right? And so I think there has been a surgence of Kind of street retail, um, and it is in, in ways a little more organic, and I think that's what makes it kind of beautiful. It is innately built to be part of the, the urban fabric, um, and then conversely, I think we're we're seeing kind of the opposite ends of the stretch uh, spectrum, where you have some developers who are kind of amassing more in the higher density areas. Um, for example, like uh, Westfield, I think strategically has has put their uh, strategy in kind of the, the pieces of real estate that are more dense. So, so each I think have a place, but I don't think there's a singular answer to, to it. I, I think each contextually offer has a different offering. Um, and I think its success is really dependent on how, how well it can be authentic to itself and, and the communities that, that are drawn to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how does this tie into community design, especially the fact that we aren't building singularly anymore, that we're we have mixed use spaces? Um, what kind of um, what kind of attention to detail do you need to look at when you are looking at different communities? So I think that's a, a really relevant question because each project we found it is is completely unique. Um, whether we're working with some of our, our brand relationships like Erwan or Equinox or SoulCycle or a new tech camp campus that's coming, um, e each of them have different demands, but they're all, I think, hungry to to voice their own uh, authentic sense of brand, right? And when we're looking at through all those typologies, I think having community, the communities that they're they're investing in and, and looking to um, to build those relationships from a brand level, I think that's that's the baseline of of, of how each of these um, these projects are becoming successful. So the level of detail does come. I think at two ends of the spectrum, it starts with the conversations with communities that they're going in, um, making sure that they're creating spaces for people to gather, um, to, to make sure that they are giving back to the communities that they're going to. 
but conversely, paying attention to the detail so that um, I think Equinox is a great example of that. They have 90 plus locations worldwide, but each of their clubs kind of are a little different, right? So whether it's in urban New York, uh, where the brand started and, and our work with them really on the, the West Coast, we've been um, tasked with the challenge of still being authentic to their to who they are as an urban brand, um, being very responsive to high performance lifestyle, but also being responsive to the California lifestyle, Southern California lifestyle, or we're doing work in San Francisco where it's much more urban. So each project demands, I think, a, a, a little um, attention to that detail and specificity. Mm -hmm. You know, it, I think it's so interesting because um, I've lived in a lot of different cities, you know, grew up in like Los Angeles, went to school in San Francisco and New York. And now I'm in basically suburban Iowa. Um, and I always get a lot of questions from people about, oh, it must have been so overwhelming. It must have been crazy to live there. And it always comes down to. Well, no, because my neighborhood, I went to the same shops. You know, I went to this place that was down the street from my work as I was getting on the subway. And then I only went to, the, you know, like the only thing that stopped me from doing my same routine constantly was if, you know, there was um, a store with like a really cool display or something, you know, or something new that popped up. And, and I was curious about it, but it rarely came into my routine. And it's exactly the same now where it's like, well, yeah, we have a, a very large mall. I'm still just, even though it has a ton of stores, I'm still going there for Target. You know, like right. I know what I'm going for. I'm going here. This is what I'm doing. Um, and do you have to kind of go into that kind of mentality of urban versus suburban when you're talking to uh, clients and helping them to design for a new space? Absolutely. I think to put a suburban solution uh, or, or a, let's say even a mindset of how you would approach a, an urban project into a suburban one and then vice versa, um, taking a, an urban context and, and doing an overlay of a suburban context, um, I, I would say that's missing the mark. You, we have to be responsive into, into those day-to-day -day lives. And, and when you're thinking about being responsive to uh, let's go back to your lifestyle when you were in New York. You had the benefit of being um, having great public transportation, and your mobility was so high, right? And and that wasn't with the dependency of the car. So I think brands and um, the context of retail and hospitality and health and wellness all have to take that into account. Um, and the designs then have to be so responsive to that, so specific to that, that they have to say you're going to the gym, they have to make sure you have a space for a really big bag because you're, you're carrying your life with you, right, in your bag or your backpack. Um, they have to give you a place to charge your phone. They have to give you a place to maybe touch down and do some work before or after you're, you're hitting um, you're hitting your workout or getting, and then maybe even some food. So I think that that narrative and dialogue of of the lifestyles then start influencing what the spatial parameters, what the program um, is requiring. And, and oftentimes we're asked, asked to program flexibility, right? In, in both contexts. So 
I think that 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 sensitivity to context and how to think about it directly impact how a design gets evolved and uh, manifested. And and I think if it's done right, you'll see almost a different project every time. Mm-hmm. I think that's interesting also because it's, it's, it's very similar to hospitality, like where we're seeing you have hotel brands that the client who stays wants to wake up every day seeing the same thing, doesn't matter which city they're in. Then you have the completely, you know, the client that wants to know exactly and everything has to be very uh, of that community. And it it does seem like there is a standardization for some of these big brands and then other brands are going in the completely unique, uh, you know, community centered, like uh, Target, for example, like you walk into a Target, you know where things are. And, um, and do you see that creating any kind of issues or problems in the retail design that maybe you people want to be aware of or or what is the difference between the standardization versus the community aspect? Hmm. I think that's a that's a great almost dichotomy, right? This hyper standardization where you kind of know what to expect. So uh, what's being delivered it's not confusing. So you know where to enter, you know, kind of where each piece of what you need to get is kind of located and zoned correctly. Um, so that creates an ease for uh, a customer experience. Absolutely. Um, and, and I think there's a place for that. I think if every, like you could even just say uh, at a most extremes case, if, if every Costco was a different series of, um, organization when you went into it, um, that would probably be um, inefficient and it would probably create a, an experience that you wouldn't want to go back again because it feels very disorganized. Um, but I think... Yeah, because you're not going to Costco to like hang out and walk around the aisles leisurely. Right, exactly. You kind of know yeah. where to get your samples and, and get a nibble and then you also know yeah. get, like your top 10 things that you always get. And then somehow, you know, the other 10 things come into your cart because you are meandering. It's because you know your path and they know how to engage you, to introduce you to new things. And and that model works, I think, in some aspects. But, um, and and just speaking out loud, maybe that's that's really a model uh, for kind of a larger format in interaction. Um, I think when it gets to a much more smaller format, the demand is it is to be much more diverse, whether it's an ASOP or um, uh, you know a, a Warby Parker or or other brands that that can can have that flexibility, but they can still have that strength of of brand and sense of identity that they can really play up that that community and regional specific um, character. Um, so I think both are important, um, but I think the most important thing is whatever a brand chooses to do, that it's it's true to itself. Um, so I think almost standardization is in ways it, it's it's almost a necessity because that creates efficiency, especially with multiple locations and, and brand touch points in kind of a physical sense, but. Uh, on the other end, if it's so rigid that it doesn't allow that flexibility to to service um, the lifestyles of, of of the clients and customers, 
um, and just people. I, I almost hate talking about people as like almost like commodities, right? It's it's really driven by people and our lifestyles. I think that's that's been the underlying um, demand of, of the work that we're doing. Um, there's no singular answer for everything, and I think that almost tailoring to to make it work for each context creates those uh, creative solutions. Mm-hmm. Now, looking at um, the next few years, do you see any trends popping up and um, what is the future of retail design? Do you have any thoughts on that? Sure. I, I believe that there will always be a balance of kind of the fast emergence of, of technology. There's no way to even, I think, forecast how, um, where it will go, but we can forecast that it's going to be, I think, an even deeper exponential growth than we've experienced in the past five to 10 years. So that exchange of information um, will expand. I think also its its footprint in retail will, will expand. Um, Conversely, when we're talking about the engagement of, of brands in the physical spaces, you know, traditionally called brick and mortar, but gathering people, it's really about, um, I think, the engagement of, of the brands with the people that are drawn to go there. And it's almost like creating authentic, I think, human to human uh, touch points. Oh, and it's, it sounds really technical, but I think in a, in a more accurate representation, it's really about creating, I think, genuine social interaction. And I, that's the key of the, and the movement of, of what we'll see in the future. Um, I think we almost have a bias of what retail has been and what it should be. Um, I think those who are kind of forward thinking and more open don't have that limitation. So I think there's almost an education piece to dissolve how we think um, retail should be based on, let's say, even a preconceived notion or our past experiences. I think the most successful um, examples of, of how that's evolving in the future are going to be the the leaders and pioneers of dissolving those those preconceived notions. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just just thinking out loud here. One of the things you said about the the social aspects, um, something that I was studying for a long time in grad school was about the psychological implications of different types of design, including. Um, you know, uh, user interface design and the way that we are in social media and uh, digital so often. Um, And I know that research has shown that uh, younger people, their their ability to have empathy is actually diminished. Uh, You don't really grow that aspect of your brain or you don't start um, thinking with that side of the brain until you're you're an adult. and so there is a concern that younger people aren't learning empathy because they aren't looking people in the eye and saying, hey, when I call something someone something terrible, <laughs> they look at me sad, you know, and then you start to register. Oh, I don't want to do that to somebody. So doing it, you know, these trolls and everything through digital is really creating a problem with with empathy. But mm-hmm. 
I think it, it seems like people are starting to realize like, and maybe I'm totally wrong. Maybe it's just me, but like, you know, having social interactions only through digital is not how people want to live. So it makes sense as to why like these open air, uh, you know, multi-use spaces would be kind of a place where people want to hang out and get together. I know that oftentimes there's like, uh, you know, the city might put on a, uh, an art show or a concert or something like that in those spaces. And it's kind of, I feel like, you know, the retail aspect has people coming there for almost like a reason, like people need a reason to leave their house, but you know, uh, they're there to do something. But then the big aspect of that is the socialization. Um, I guess, does that sound about right? I love when I'm wrong. So if it, that's no, nowhere close to right. <laughs> you know what, it's funny when, when you describe that research, I, I think I did recall kind of seeing um, footage of, of that research and um, those who, who did make comments or share on a social media or a digital platform changed when they saw a face um, reacting to it. Um, and it, and it, it did put, uh, let's just say a more human, um, dynamic, right? It's not, it's not an abstraction anymore. It becomes, uh, very real. And I guess that's the, that's the drive of, of, of getting back to authenticity is that things are at, in, in this movement of technology, uh, we're getting twice or even three times removed or even more from actual genuine interaction. Um, yes, I think absolutely retail has a, a platform in that, but I just think uh, that's that's our social responsibility as architects and designers to to recognize that that is an issue and how we can how we can foster that that sense of community and bringing people together that isn't dependent on 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 technology. Uh, I think that's notwithstanding that again that technology is going to move and evolve over over the years. It's not going anywhere, but um, I think it's a it's a healthy reminder that we we have a responsibility to uh, to be cognizant of of the impacts uh, of the work that we do, and and I think that's a that's a a pretty amazing dialogue to be in. Um, I know you have a background in in, um, in design and, and, and architecture and industrial design as well. That that we're kind of remarkable in the sense that we are uh, the work that we do has lasting impacts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it that EPA statement. I think it was in 2017. Um, it may have been last summer. I need to double check that, but that people in America spend 93% of their time indoors. I'm always bringing that up because it's like, how can you see that people spend 93% of their time indoors or in cars? And most of the rest of that 7%, unless you're somehow completely off the grid, um, is going to be in the built environment. How do you, how do we as interior designers and architects not take our jobs so seriously because we are creating <laughs> what people are around 100% of their time almost? Um, I, I totally agree. I, I think that it's almost like an endemic, right? Like, um, luckily, I think we have 
a part of our practice that really is multidisciplinary. Um, so within the context of RDC, our sister brand, Studio 111, which really focuses on, on urbanism and urban repair um, to the extension of our other brands of um, our landscape studio, our interior design studio. Um, that helps us, I think, um, give us multiple perspectives on, on the built environment. So when, when we do look at projects, it, it is, it is holistic. It has to think about indoors, outdoors. It has to think about those connections. Sometimes it even expands to the street, right? And into the city environment. So we're thinking at that macro and micro scale together. Um, and I think that's a, a maybe worthy of, of kind of a movement, I would say. Um, obviously we have amazing consultants that we have, but um, uniquely in our practice, we have some of that expertise in house. So that, that allows us to give um, the diversity of, of perspective and expertise um, to kind of think beyond just singular disciplines. And I, I think that's definitely a movement in, in, in our industry. Um, even to talk about industrial design and even in construction, uh, I think there's also a shift in, in the in the model of how how the disciplines work. Uh, you know, oftentimes we talk about design build, and I think that that model gets thrown around loosely. Um, there's design assist. There's um, I think a lot of different ways of of, of integrating teams early, uh, so that we're getting I think not only a speed to market and, and efficient and smart way of approaching a project, but it also gives us, um, I think, uh, a richer dialogue because we have multiple perspectives in the room uh, of experts. So I think um, it's easy to get focused into singular disciplines, but um, the demand of, of being much more broad and, and diverse, I think it really serves um, quality design and, and quality process. Mm -hmm. I remember when I started in the design field, something like 15 years ago, my boss was amazing. And he was constantly saying, if you're going to stay in design, insist that you have a seat at the table, insist that like whether you're, you're the architect or the interior designer or the graphic designer, make sure that you have a seat at that table to, to have a conversation from, from the get-go. And that always really stuck in my brain just about anything you taught me really stuck in my brain. But um, here in Iowa, the University of Iowa got uh, several grants after a large flood that destroyed a bunch of the university buildings to build all these brand new, like the art wing and the music wing and uh, a whole amphitheater and all of that. And they're being done by these huge names. And the thing that I find so hilarious is that I'm friends with a lot of construction workers out here. So the other day I sat down and I was like, oh, you worked on the, and I absolutely love Stephen Hole's work. I absolutely love this work, but I was like, oh, you worked on the, the new Stephen Hole building. And they were like, you mean this one? I said, yeah. And I'm like, how was that? Like between the architectural drawings and then how things came together, was it, how, how did that go? And it was just really interesting to hear, you know, these aspects of like, well, you know, these things, we didn't come in till the very end and these things uh, we have some concerns about. And that seems to be, it seems to be that the interior design and architecture industries are starting to work more holistically, but where they aren't, it's, 
it's uh, it's concerning that there isn't that conversation at some point. Um, but that was that's also one building that uh, hopefully we are seeing a lot more holistic uh, communities happening out there. Right. I think you're you're hitting it on the nail. the The complexity of putting a building together is is much more than a quick hand sketch and some lofty ideas of like, oh, here's here's an idea. There there is a rigor in in our industry to have that artistry, but also have the capability of technical expertise to execute that and having the know how of your strategic partners, whether it's a contractor or uh, a fabricator, um, being able to foster that dialogue. And you're exactly right. You must have a table. And if that table is not filled with a lot of people who are relevant to the project and bring the right expertise, then, then we're, we're subject to, to those, um, those oversights or, or, or potential um, situations where we, we could have had a, a much more positive outcome. Um, and I, I think that's, you're exactly right. That's the un, underestimated aspect of the work we do. Um, it's not just about drawings. It is about that study. It is about that hyper communication, both verbally through drawings, through um, 3D modeling, through, through all of the tools that we have. Um, it, it, it's a complex industry and, and, and there's no easy way. You don't learn it overnight. Um, so you're exactly right. It, it, the, the industry is so complex. And, and I think um, the, the deeper the collaborations, the, the earlier onboarding of, of the team, um, I think re really benefits to, to help that uh, disconnect. Mm -hmm. Now, just as a final question, I always love to um, ask people if there is anything that uh, we haven't talked about already that you think would be really important for our listeners to know about. I would definitely say the that I, I'm so impassioned about this kind of social aspect of the work that we do. Um, and uh, yes, there's influence, but to be part of really diving into it. So um, I personally, just to share, really invest in in food and travel and um, kind of going to different places and, and learning from different people and different cultures. I think that that is the backbone of, of creativity is really opening those dialogues and seeing how to think um, beyond uh, your preconceptions and shattering some of the, the ways that we think um, the things that think that things should be. Um, I think, that that ultimately leads to, to the greatest creativity and not bringing any kind of preconceived notions to a design um and and that's that that to me is the most in, exciting and engaging part is 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 opening opening up the possibilities and opening the dialogue about those possibilities all right great thank you again for joining us today this has been great um so to all of our listeners, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe so you can get updates about all of our podcasts as they go live. And until next time, thanks so much.